Even before the onset of the COVID pandemic, many low-income countries were facing a resurgence in their debt burdens, including among past recipients of large-scale debt relief from multilateral and bilateral creditors. How did we get here? Or maybe more appropriately, how did we get back here? Welcome to What Have We Learned, a podcast focused on the lessons learned from tackling pressing challenges in international development. I'm your host, Jeff Chelsky, Manager of the Economic Management and Country Programs Unit at the World Bank Group's Independent Evaluation Group, IEG. Today, we're going to talk about debt sustainability, in particular, the resurgence over the last several years in the debt burden carried by low-income countries. Let me start by talking briefly about why governments borrow. Just like for businesses, borrowing is an important source of financing for all economies, developed and developing. Borrowing allows countries to finance investments that have to be paid for upfront, but for which the benefits accrue over longer periods of time. The presumption is that the social and economic returns on the investments will be greater than the interest rate paid on the money borrowed to finance it. And of course, governments might also borrow to finance counter-cyclical spending, for example, to support their economies in the face of large but temporary economic shocks such as COVID. So why is this a problem now and for low-income countries in particular? Well, there are a lot of reasons for the surge in borrowing by low-income countries over the last decade. This includes a prolonged period of low commodity prices, which negatively affected the revenue on which many low-income countries depend to pay for the functioning of government and to service debt. At the same time, global interest rates have been low by historical standards. Many governments have taken advantage of lower interest rates and increased borrowing, including to finance infrastructure and other public investments. At the same time, the supply of available financing increased as investors looked for higher yields. But not only did many low-income countries expand borrowing, they did so increasingly from more costly sources, including capital markets and commercial lenders. Add to that large-scale lending by some non-Paris Club creditors on terms that were frequently opaque and non-concessional, and you have the situation we see today. Now, low-income countries are, by definition, heavily resource-constrained. This makes it particularly important that the benefits of board resources exceed the cost of servicing the associated debt. This requires the kind of capacity in areas such as public finance management, public expenditure management, public investment management, and debt management that low-income country governments generally lack. While the erosion of debt sustainability has been evident for much of the last decade, it has most certainly deteriorated further during the pandemic. A range of global initiatives have been launched by major donors and creditors and creditor groups such as the G20, IMF, and World Bank to help countries already laden with debt weather this storm. This includes the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, which has delivered more than $5 billion in relief to more than 40 eligible countries, and the G20 Common Framework for Debt Resolution. The World Bank has also implemented the Sustainable Development Finance Policy, or SDFP, to incentivize countries to address some of the shortcomings that contributed to the resurgence in debt levels. Now, against this backdrop, I've invited my friend and former colleague, Marie-Lou Hui, to discuss the origins of the problem and what institutions like the World Bank can do to help alleviate its impact on the achievement of global development goals. Marie-Lou is director of the G24, the intergovernmental group of 24 countries on international monetary affairs and development. She's also a member of the Task Force on Climate and Development at the IMF, 
And prior to taking on her role at the G24, she was the senior advisor to the managing director at the World Bank and also served as sector director for the Africa Financial and Private Sector Development Department and director of the financial sector operations and policy departments at the World Bank. So Mary Lou, uh, before turning to the topic at hand, could you explain a bit more about the G24, uh, particularly for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with it? Thanks, Jeff, and thanks for inviting me in this podcast and the kind introduction. Um, Well, the Group of 24 is a forum of developing countries, and the principals are the finance ministers and the central bank governors of these countries. Um, The group has had a long history of advocating for the interests of developing countries, especially on issues on international monetary and financial affairs including, of course, um, development financing. So um, just as a few examples, we've advocated for a much stronger uh, global financial safety net or the availability of liquidity support in times of stress. We've also uh, sought improvements in in the system for sovereign debt resolutions globally. And we've advocated for much stronger or more development financing from uh, the international community and international financial institutions. We do issue communiques twice a year where we reflect our priorities at the time, and they're issued uh, at the margins of the IMF and the World Bank group meetings, and they are available in our website for people who might be interested in looking at them at www.g24.org. Thanks very much. Actually, I um, knew some, but not all of that. So um, I am now better informed. So let's turn to the issue of debt and low-income countries. Seeing the current debt crisis, it's hard not to feel a feeling of deja vu. Following the granting of unprecedented levels of debt relief to the poorest countries, the World Bank and the IMF were to have helped put in place systems, mechanisms, policies, and other support to avoid this very situation. What happened? Well, you gave a very good introduction on what has happened you know, in the in debt trends and the structures of debt, especially in low-income countries. Now, um, but were countries concerned? Yes, they were. As early as 2018, um, they uh, expressed strong concern about the rapid uh, debt buildup, particularly sovereign debt and particularly market-based debt. As a matter of priority, they sought increased support from the IMF and the World Bank Group, particularly on building capacity for more proactive debt management. They also sought technical assistance for public investment management, recognizing that perhaps they could use better the borrowed resources to invest in activities that would spur growth, which of course is key to debt sustainability. Uh, Did the World Bank uh, Group uh, and the IMF respond? Yes, they did. They started the um, multi-pronged approach to address debt vulnerabilities. And in this approach, key components were ramping up their assistance for public debt management, as well as uh, enhancements on debt transparency in debt reporting of countries. So um, there was concern at that time on what has been happening uh, in uh, debt vulnerabilities in developing countries. Now, I do want to mention uh, something about um, the, uh, the structure of debt that you mentioned earlier on. 
that one important trend was a decline in concessional financing to low-income countries. So at the same time that low-income countries were increasingly borrowing from financial markets, they were also receiving less concessional financing from the traditional donors uh, of that kind of financing. Now, I mentioned this to highlight the need for more international cooperation to increase concessional financing for low-income countries. And what's happening with, with IDA20 is an example of, um, of increased interest on the value of uh, concessional resources for low-income countries. Let me pick up on something you said. You made reference to public investment management. Now, we know a lot of this borrowing was borrowing to uh, either finance the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals, um, and a lot of it was for infrastructure, uh, which raises, uh, I think, the issue of public investment management. One of the IEG evaluations, um, the evaluation of World Bank Group's support to public financial and debt management, pointed out that while the bank provided significant support to for debt management capacity building, um, it did not provide equal support for low-income countries in public investment management. And public investment management is about being able to identify the most impactful projects, uh, essentially trying to get the best value um, for money. It's not just about um, the efficiency of the investment, it's making sure that you actually even choose the right projects. Uh, is this something that you see as as problematic? Uh, is, is it the case, perhaps, that a lot of this borrowing went to finance um, less than productive investments or at least investments that underperformed relative to expectation? Well, what I can say is that there were assessments even in 2019, for example, of what has happened, uh, how countries used their, their, their borrowed resources. So while many low-income countries actually invested more in, um, in infrastructure at the same time that they were borrowing more, uh, some others, perhaps many others, also were using fiscal resources primarily for consumption purposes. So from that trend alone, um, it clearly was worthwhile looking at how countries were uh, using particularly borrowed resources with highly um, with market terms um, and and using them in areas where they could actually support growth and um, and ensure that sustainability in the future. So in essence, from a debt to GDP perspective, debt was going up and GDP wasn't responding accordingly. Yes. The, the, while there were improvements in growth, they probably will help by other factors than, say, productivity improvements in the country. Now, you, you started uh, making reference to the resolution of some of the debt problems and this is clearly going to need the involvement of the full range of creditors. Uh, well, Paris Club creditors, the traditional creditors, Europeans, Canadians, Americans, uh, provide a forum for bilateral creditors to coordinate action. Not all of the current major creditors are members of the Paris Club, most notably China. And non-Paris Club creditors now account for more than twice the outstanding external debt, as do Paris Club creditors. So any solution is going to require the engagement of non-Paris Club creditors. How do we bring them to the table? Well, I mean, there is a realization in, in global forums such as the G20 that there is a need uh, for a 
um, let's say, a forum or creditors beyond members of the Paris Club. And so that was the origin of uh, the introduction of the G20 Common Framework for Debt Treatments. And here, G20 lenders will be part of the table of negotiators. No? And that would include China, which is, of course, the largest borrower outside, uh, bar- sorry, the largest lender outside of the Paris Club. So that's one important progress uh, in the, in the, let's say, in the area of creditor coordination. Now, that said, the experience so far of the three low-income countries that have used the common framework suggests that more work needs to be done to give developing countries the confidence that the process is actually effective and expeditious. These processes of, um, of sovereign debt resolution are so lengthy and so timely, so it's hard to get the confidence that they will actually benefit from the process, um, process in a timely way. Now, that is not to say that uh, countries do not have a role. In fact, countries will actually need to take the lead in seeking debt resolution when they need it, and the required creditor coordination to achieve it. That, of course, is much easier said than done. Now, a major concern of developing countries, particularly low-income countries, well, actually all developing countries, is loss of market access as their debt situation worsens. To illustrate, it was very notable that during the time of the DSSI, some low-income countries were very concerned about the credit rating downgrades that could happen if they availed for, of that debt relief. So it, it was truly an issue about uh, the concern about uh, market access and losing it. Let me um, turn to a slightly different topic. You know, as I mentioned at the outset, the resurgence of debt stress happened before the COVID pandemic. So what does COVID mean for low-income countries and the sustainability of their debt burdens? Well, um, there's quite a lot of data on what has happened to public finances uh, because of COVID. And uh, the increase in debt burdens has been quite enormous in some countries. And that's not a surprise because their fiscal revenues declined also substantially. Now, moreover, at this time, developing countries will also need to be prepared for the worst. If the risk of financial market tightening and interest rate increases unravel as advanced countries ease out of accommodative policies, that clearly is a risk, an immediate risk. So uh, achieving or restoring debt sustainability is going to be an important issue going forward. Now, an essential part of getting to that path of debt sustainability is growth. And so a key concern of developing countries would be how to engineer that growth sooner than later. And these will depend on actions at the country and international levels. At the country level, policymakers will definitely face difficult trade-offs in how they use their limited resources. So it's all the more important that they work towards better systems to manage these fiscal resources well. Now, um, and as you said, the, interest, the World Bank's role and the IEG's evaluation point to the importance of just being vigilant about how you use your limited resources. But in addition, strong international assistance at this difficult time 
is absolutely critical. Now, one of the findings of uh, one of the IEG evaluations, um, the World Bank Group's support for addressing country-level fiscal and financial sector vulnerabilities, um, makes the point and and draws on some pre-existing evidence that a lot of debt sustainability analysis is based on overly optimistic assumptions about growth. And in, in many ways, this derives from earlier discussions of the investment growth nexus. Uh, a lot of the borrowing was undertaken with the expectation it would contribute to growth. Um, to the extent that a lot of debt sustainability analysis was overly optimistic, um, how do we ensure that that doesn't happen again and that we are making public decision decisions about public resource allocation based on realistic expectations of what the growth impact will be? Yeah, I believe that this was one of the important lessons of the frameworks on debt sustainability from the perspective of the IMF and also the World Bank Group. So there were efforts, there have been efforts to take a look at the realism of the assumptions behind the debt sustainability frameworks of the World Bank Group and the IMF, both for low-income countries as well as for market access countries. Now that said, uh, what one other factor is how frequently you do this. Since circumstances do change fairly drastically from year to year, debt sustainability assessment uh, with large gaps in between may actually not um, may actually not be useful for countries or could not catch sudden changes in the paths towards uh, debt sustainability. So much more frequent debt sustainability assessments possibly covering more countries might actually be important given that a traditional uh, characteristic of projections, as you know, is uh, the tendency towards over-optimism. So um, so one has to guard against that by being much more vigilant on uh, providing debt sustainability assessments to uh, low-income countries and market access countries. And I guess a part of that is closer scrutiny of the quality of the investments that are supposed to be fueling growth. Yes, uh, there are efforts, I believe, to, um, to take more account of the quality of investments in in um, in developing countries, and I think that's a very notable and, uh, and worthy effort by both the IMF and the World Bank Group. So that finding by the IEG on um, on putting more effort on assessing the quality of public investments is really a very important lesson going forward. Now, one of the issues that has been getting increasing attention, particularly in the um, from the World Bank and the IMF, is the issue of debt transparency. Um, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the debt that low-income countries incurred was, um, shall I say, opaque. Um, often there were non-disclosure agreements on the terms of the lending. And in um, uh, in retrospect, we, we've seen that a lot of the lending itself was not particularly concessional. Um, to what extent is debt transparency um, a priority um, issue and uh, how has it contributed to the current resurgence of debt stress? Debt transparency is an essential part of being able to manage your debt appropriately or manage your debt well. Uh, without the data, it is simply hard to assess whether debt is growing fast or at the speed that you actually think is appropriate for 
uh, your economic circumstances. So that said, there also are important gaps in debt reporting. You mentioned in your reports the gaps on state-owned enterprises, for example, contingent liabilities for state-owned enterprises. You have uh, lending where the contracts are not, um, let's say, fully transparent. And so there is need for much more digging on what actually are the terms in the contract. Now, um, and then, of course, there is the issue of collateralized debt, which um, people have found in some cases, which alarmed quite a number of, uh, let's say, lenders. So, um, so there is room for greater improvements in the way debt is disclosed and is reported. Now, with that said, there are many aspects of, um, of debt management, no? and debt transparency is one of them. But the other parts, of course, are also important in the process and should be given attention to. Now, that's going to be a, a huge task. Um, and assuming we get past it um, and deal with the most urgent challenges, including helping low-income countries manage their large and growing debt burdens, how do we lower the probability of a resurgence of such problems in the future? What is, or at least should be, the role of the World Bank in this? Well, going forward, that's, um, uh, we're now going to be talking about the longer-term agenda. Now, a lot has been written about how countries have managed recurrent debt crisis. I certainly agree with the conclusion of a recent World Bank publication that examined the historical experience of pe periods of waves of debt, that the solutions are not simple, nor is there a silver bullet. Uh, but there are some basic recommendations. Now, domestically, building institutions to manage public finances well, including debt, matter greatly. I see the importance of the World Bank Group's role in providing realistic debt sustainability assessments so countries can plan well on actions to reduce vulnerabilities, strengthening debt management and the management of the use of fiscal resources are two highly related pieces of work. They also go hand in hand with improving domestic revenue mobilization and domestic financial markets, which will lessen dependence on external borrowing. And of course, reforms to promote growth is an important part to achieving debt sustainability. These are all part and parcel of a medium-term agenda to support policies and institutions for effective macroeconomic management and an environment to promote growth, an agenda which the World Bank Group has historically supported and should continue to support well. Now, on the role of international cooperation, this is, as I said early on, quite critical. One role is to increase the availability of development financing, and particularly concessional financing and grants for low-income countries, to accelerate investments to promote a recovery and sustain a recovery. Specifically on debt, collective action is necessary to facilitate more timely sovereign debt resolutions and give countries the confidence that they can go through the process and return to economic growth and debt sustainability sooner than later. Now, in both of these cases, the World Bank Group can play very important catalytic roles. One last question. Should we have seen this coming? Probably, yes. Probably. Um, I believe that there was quite a bit of euphoria um, when growth restarted post-crisis. And I think that uh, at least low-income countries and developing countries was experiencing very rapid 
rates of growth at that time. And so um, with that, it's okay to borrow. Uh, however, as you know, with, uh, with global outlooks so uncertain, shocks come and then uh, the growth picture changes. So um, I would have said, in hindsight, we probably should have seen this coming, especially when debt was building up. But that probably is easier said than done. <laughs> um, and and it's not, a, it's not um, surprising that people get caught uh, policymakers get caught by surprises in, um, you know, in global shocks, but also uh, in terms of domestic shocks. I guess the old adage that there are only two things that are certain in life, and that's death and taxes, probably needs to be expanded to death, taxes, and the fact that the party will end. Yes, probably. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, which um, I think is, is in many ways the subject of the IG valuation that I mentioned on um, building, uh, addressing uh, country-level fiscal and financial sector vulnerabilities, it asks the question outside of the context of a crisis, do we do enough to build the resilience so that when shocks come, they don't have the kind of impact they do? Um, well, let me thank you for um, your time, your insights. Uh, this has been great, and um, I hope we can do this again. Um, so I'd like to thank Mary Lee we for the excellent exchange of ideas, and I hope you can join us again. Um, anyone interested in reading the three IEG valuations on this topic that I made reference to? Uh, their World Bank support for public financial and debt management in eligible countries, World Bank group contributions to addressing country-level fiscal and financial sector vulnerabilities, and the early stage valuation of the World Bank group's sustainable development financing policy. Uh, can visit the IEG uh, macroeconomic and debt topic page on the IEG website at ieg.worldbankgroup.org. This has been What Have We Learned? The Evaluation Podcast from the Independent Evaluation Group, IEG. Stay tuned and stay safe.